Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover the CBS all-access series, The Stand. Episode 9, The Circle Closes. Let's start the show. Franny has a baby girl she names Abigail and mourns the loss of Stu and the other walkers. But Stu returns, having been saved by Tom. Franny and Stu decide to leave Boulder and head back to Maine, to Franny's hometown. In Nebraska, while Stu is looking for supplies, Franny falls into a well and badly injures herself. In order to save herself, Stu, and baby Abigail, she must make her own stand against Randall Flagg. Jay, we had a change in episode title. Again? Yeah, again, from one week to the next. But let's start off with some listener feedback. So we got a bunch of really great emails from a few folks. Uh, One of those emails was from our good friend Liz H. And Liz thought that episode nine was a palate cleanser from episode eight. She also couldn't believe that King himself had nothing but praise for the miniseries. That is, until she learned that King's own son was involved in its creation. (laughs) Liz thought it was nice to have Abigail back in Nebraska, and that she finally healed Franny's injuries like in the book. Liz also missed the Tom and Stu homecoming tale, but the unforgivable sin through this whole series for her is that Flag is just not scary in the least. It just comes across as petty, cruel, narcissistic, and a bad-tempered guy. Um, Liz, you might have missed it, but we did get Tom and Stu's homecoming tale. Yeah. Stu said, Tom saved my life, Franny. There you go. What more did you want? I mean, is that not enough syllables? (laughs) I mean, he had a whole (laughs) sentence about it. Yeah. We joke, Liz. We'll be complaining about that in a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We also got an email from Sam G., Sam G said, I went in with so much hope and excitement and left so disappointed. That's not to say there weren't glimmers of hope throughout the series, but none of it really amounted to much when taken as a whole. Uh, Yep. Wait till we get to our Jamie Sheridan, Sam. Mm -hmm. Sam was also mind boggled when Stu and Tom magically appeared back in Boulder with a simple Tom save me line to explain their return. Wow. It seems like we got a theme here, Jay. Yeah. To end on a positive note, I'm glad they went with the Russell Faraday ending as in the novel. I would be interested to hear what people who haven't read the book thought of it, though. And Sam concludes with the final rating of the series of two Jamie Sheridans because he, too, refuses to cut the poor man in half. (laughs) Jay, you've got a lot of people convinced on that. Yeah, you you can't cut Jamie Sheridan in half. I will do so at my wish if I so desire. (laughs) At my leisure? At my leisure. I was going to say that, yes. (laughs) Excellent. We also got a brilliantly written summary of some ideas, thoughts, and analysis from my friend Tony L. And I'll do my best to summarize some of the key things that Tony said. One of his key points was, I acknowledge that The Stand as a novel is a work of great pop cultural importance. However, I do wonder if, due to its influencing a great many other books, films, and shows in its wake, if it isn't perhaps futile to adapt today. And given the current circumstances, whether it's a worthwhile story to adapt or retell. This modern retelling fails to speak to this moment we're living in, 
which is something that most adaptations at least make some effort toward because otherwise, what's the point? That's a very good question, Tony. I think that that is a problem with a lot of influential works is that so much comes after them Hmm. that build upon it and take things in a new and interesting direction. And as a culture, we're always learning more and more that when we go back to other works, it can be hard to understand why that work was important or how it was groundbreaking or how it hasn't changed. And this book is, you know, 40 some years old now. And there have been a glut of post-apocalyptic stories in the ensuing decades. And in fact, it's become a huge genre in and of itself. Yeah. So when Tony mentions that it's influenced so many things, it's hard to adapt because people have certain expectations or have seen things before. I mean, I think of Alien. Alien's a a work that I love, but like there are literally hundreds of science fiction movies that I've seen since then that are like Alien, right? Mm -hmm. And we've seen that so many times that when you show Alien to people, they're like, I've seen this before and I've seen it done better. And you're like, no, you haven't. (laughs) Alien did it first. And Mm -hmm. some of that's like that with The Stand. And to Tony's point, if you're going to adapt it, it's hard to adapt it in the way it was because the culture has moved on and a lot of what we've known have worked on. So people, including us probably, are questioning it in a different way. So if a writer or a producer or director doesn't add something to it and to his point, speak to the moment then are you doing a disservice? Are you just making a period piece at that point? Or are you saying something more? So Tony makes a good point there. Yeah. And I think something that Tony's speaking to with this point is all stories are a response to the time that they're created and often an exploration or analysis of a certain idea. Mm. The original book was of its time in 1978. And it explored ideas that King was curious about at that time. And it worked because of that. It's the subtext that I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. When somebody else adapts that work into a new form, if they don't bother with the subtext and they just adapt the text, then it feels disconnected from anything and therefore hollow and meaningless. Unfortunately, I mean, the stand has a somewhat awkward position in this point too, because King updated it two different times and it became disconnected from its own subtext because of those adaptations, because of the updates he made. So it's a little bit harder to fault the TV miniseries for losing track of that subtext, but they could have invented their own, make a show that is about the text of the book, but adapt it to today's struggles and concerns, make that the subtext and still tell the story of The Stand. That would have been a far more engaging and interesting TV show to watch. And it doesn't help that this show was made in 2019 and is already dated because of the events of 2020. Yeah. I think Tony makes great points in his email, and it's something I wish we could all see and read. And Jay and I felt uh, inadequate in some respects because we're (laughs) reacting to a TV show, you know, what, usually less than eight hours after we've just watched it Mm -hmm. and scrambling to put together notes and put together an episode. And I really appreciate Tony having this sort of telescoping out and looking at it from a gestalt standpoint and and putting together a lot of great thoughts on it. Yeah. And regarding Tony's reaction to our podcast itself, he said, keep up the excellent podcast work. You guys have put together an enjoyable and surprisingly chill show. It had me thinking that if NPR had a Stephen King appreciation show, it would sound like two guys to the Dark Tower came. Well, thank you for that, Tony. Your praise means a lot. 
This is NPR. <laughs> yeah, and if anyone wants to pitch our show to NPR, we would definitely appreciate it. We could use some of that public radio money. Yeah, we'll call it not so fresh air. <laughs> All right. Well, we did have a tweet from our friend Little Bit Extra on today's episode. And she said, Yay for Nebraska and the Turtle and Channel 19 on the radios. I will say that's a thinny that both Jay and I missed about Channel 19. We'll talk mm -hmm. about the other ones in a little bit. Yay for seeing Flag come back. But that entire healing two sides thing in Nebraska. Is that to make up for the lack of true good versus evil story in the other eight episodes? And then a little bit goes on to say, I'm just thankful I own the 94 miniseries because that's our palate cleanser for next week. Well, that sounds uh, like a good use of your time compared to this one. So enjoy that Jamie Sheridan goodness. Indeed. I kind of feel like I need to watch that whole miniseries to wash this one out of my brain. Yeah, or we could just, I don't know, watch anything else. All right, well, let's get into. Episode nine, the circle closes. And I want to talk about how this was mostly a new and novel story compared to what we saw in the book. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, I thought it worked, but it worked in a weird, artificially successful ways, I think how we're going to put it, Jay, because it didn't make a whole lot of sense if you stopped and thought about it. Mm -hmm. And it relied on coincidence and characters not making smart decisions to set up the story that King wanted to tell. And part of that is because he was a little bit handcuffed by what happened earlier in the series. And part of it, it was just because I don't know if as a whole, the writers and directors and producers cared. So just to give some examples, Jay, of this artificialness, as Franny and Stu pull into this home in Nebraska, they said, oh, we just passed a grocery store and drugstore 10 miles previous. We yeah. should go back there and get supplies. And why wouldn't you just stop when you were there? Like, why pass it by and then stop yeah. and then go back? I mean, it was 15 minutes difference, right? They're living in a scarcity conditions, right? They're yeah. being deliberately cautious about not using up their supplies and replenishing them whenever possible. If you drive past a big grocery store, go in it, right? Yeah. Why not just stop? Yeah. So obviously it's because we need to separate these two characters at some point and we and, and and that wouldn't do it. Yeah. Another one is Franny exploring the pump that's in the middle of this well that's covered by old creaky boards. She's been established as a, a pretty smart, self-sufficient character. She's also a mother and alone with the baby. Yep. Why would this person take any risk like this? Franny just simply wouldn't do this. No. But she does anyway. But in the moment, it does feel suspenseful. We don't know what's going to happen. There's suspenseful music playing. We get these cut-in shots where she's like just barely reaching it. <laughs> and is what's going to happen? And you start to feel like you're being drawn to the edge of your seat. But at the same time, like you said earlier, if you think about it for a minute, this never would have happened. This is an artificially successful suspenseful moment. Yeah. Uh, another one, again, this is minor stuff, but when you think about the situation, it all adds up. Stu gets a flat tire. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I believe that he's going to get a flat tire. Maybe flag caused it. You could, you know. Yeah. He goes back and looks at the road like, what did I ride over? And yeah. he doesn't see anything. And he's like, oh, well, I guess I'll just fix the tire. Yeah. But you're on a back road and there's definitely not going to be any traffic coming along. Why pull off onto the soft ground? Why not just stay on the pavement? But again, we have to have the truck in a precarious position, so it might seem like it might fall on Stu because of the way the jack is set up. So 
all this stuff just sort of adds up to a point where you're like, why is this happening? Oh, yeah, it's got to be this way so that the characters can be in a position where we want them to add this suspense. This is another minor one, Jay, but I looked up to see how far away Boulder, Colorado was from this town in Nebraska, Mm -hmm. and it's a total of about 540 miles. Stu makes the comment, hey, we traveled 400 miles today. That's pretty good, huh? All right. Even if you're taking back roads, that means you did 400 miles in this day, and you only had about 130, 140 on the previous multiple days because they make it sound like they've been traveling for at least a couple of days because we saw them camp out once, and they seem to have this system down about, here's how we check out the houses. We've got a system in place. How long did it take them to travel that first 120 miles? Like four days? Were they only traveling like 30 miles an hour? Was there lots of backups on the road? Um, That would obviously give us time to see Chekhov's winch, which they get to use so that we know that it's going to work later on. But like, despite all of that, I was engaged in the story. I wanted to see what happened to Franny. I was concerned about Franny and the baby and Stu. And is something going to happen to one of them? And what's that going to look like? But again, I think it was in spite of itself that it was successful. Yeah. And the frustrating thing is that what success there was in this episode was based on that artificiality. But your talk about how you were engaged is a good segue into our next section, which I'm just calling Franny in the well, because I guess that's what King wanted to call it. And can I just mention before we get too deep into this, we called this last episode. If you listen to the stinger of our last episode, we said, hey, is Stu going to be like, Kojak, what is it? Is Franny in the well? And that's pretty much exactly what happened when Stu pulls up to the house and Kojak's standing in the middle of the road. He's like, what is it, Kojak? What's wrong? Where's Franny? Yeah, I'm overall just deeply disappointed by the writing in this show. I kind of feel like they've only watched a couple of shows and think that nobody else that watches this (laughs) show has ever watched any other TV. So when they have a dog helping one human find out about how another human has fallen down a well, like they're literally using a joke trope as real text for the show. Yep. Unironically. Unironically. Yes, exactly. So what worked about Franny in the well, Sean. Well, I'll I'll tell you the big thing that worked for me and is actually an improvement on the book. And that is in the book, Franny is almost an afterthought to the conclusion of how the characters make a stand. Hmm. And this coda that King has written for the TV show gives Franny her due as an essential part of that, that she gets to make her stand against Flag himself. She has a scene directly with Flag where the two of them talk and face off, and she does not succumb to his temptation, and she realizes that she will have no fear and that she needs to take a stand, and she does so. She knows the evil that is Flag and will not submit. And that elevates her, especially for a show that has not done well with Franny in general, starts off with her attempting a suicide attempt just to make Harold look good, and then sort of sidelines her the rest of it. We get to see her come to the forefront here and take action and take a stand. And I thought that that worked well and was really faithful to this character. By come to the forefront of the action and and take a stand, you mean fall into a well? Well, yeah. I mean, it's sort of like Uh, one step forward, two steps back, I guess. Yeah. I'm still frustrated that she would have ever put herself in that position. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I thought something that worked was that maybe this is entirely due to the fact that Stephen King himself wrote at least part of this episode, is that this episode gets to and exposes the core of the story, that there is good and evil in everyone, and it's up to us as individuals to follow the right path. And that because we can make that choice, 
there's hope for the future. There is absolutely no work done for this <laughs> leading up to this episode, but here in this episode, in this moment, we get that. And that's central to the book. That's central to what King's trying to tell us in his story. That's what the stand is about. So I'm glad we got to see it here. True. And Franny is much more pessimistic when she's writing her diary, mm -hmm. but she seems very concerned about what's going to happen. And, you know, we get those intercut montage with the guns being handed out and her being worried. And then her and Stu talk about that later. And they do seem down on the on the future, which is somewhat like it is in the book, that down on the future. But when she has that talk with Mother Abigail, which it was nice to see because I don't think that relationship was built up as much as it could have been, Mother Abigail and Franny, actually Mother Abigail and anyone. Um, but when Mother Abigail tells her, like, you're going to have five kids and those five kids are going to have 20 kids and those 20 kids are going to have 70 kids and you're going to be around to see some of them. And that hope that the earth will be replenished by children. I thought that that was a nice, hopeful look at the future, which we didn't get anywhere else, as you said. Yeah. Eventually, Franny's going to get to the beget, beget, beget part of her diary, right? Right. <laughs> Stuthusla, beget, Abigail. Yeah. So that was good. And I overall liked Franny's interaction with Flag. I thought that those were good scenes because we didn't get to see a lot of our good characters interact with Flag too much. Mm-hmm. You know, in Vegas, they're not really one-on-one -on -one with Flag. Flag is separated from Larry and Ray. They're down, locked up in a pool, and he's on a balcony away. It's their interaction. Dancing. Is, yeah, dancing. Very sexily, I might add. <laughs> they're more interacting with Lloyd than they are with Flag. Um, here we actually get to see one of our heroes face off against Flag and come out on top. Yeah, I think the last time we saw that happen was with Nick when Flag tempted Nick. Yeah, that was early on. Yeah, episode two. Yeah. But then it was good because we get to see Nick help Tom heal Stu and bring him out of the wilderness. So that was another good scene with Nick. Oh, right. They didn't show any of that, did they? Yeah. They basically erased the character of Nick. But that's not in this episode. Nor in any other. Or in any other. So some of the things that didn't work for us in this episode... Um, you know, you said that Franny's interaction with Flag was something that worked. I think that Franny's interaction with Flag was something that didn't work. Mm. I think every single moment of Flag was weak to bad in this. Skarsgård's performance is good, but the lines and the direction that he's given is just, I, I don't even know what they were thinking. He tempts Franny once. She says no. He tempts her again. She says no. He tempts her a third time. She bites his lip, and then in what I thought was kind of a, a hammy line delivery, does a get thee behind me. And then Flag does this thing like, all right, if that's how you're going to be, then now you'll feel my wrath. You know, I couldn't tempt you with things you wanted. Now I will punish you. And he growls like the wolf, and he begins to chase after her. And then the scene just abruptly ends. So oh, 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 he's undercut. And then when we, in the final scene, when he, gains power over the tribe, the fact that they have him say, worship me, mm. they could have been a bit more subtle. He frightens the people in the tribe. He kills one of them. And then everybody drops to their knees. And now he's leveled up and he can levitate. Then he screams, worship me. Mm. He could have said, oh, look, I now have the power to levitate again. 
everybody's already on their knees worshiping me. I have what I want and I can get more of it. Now I will smile. Now I will just embrace this moment of achievement. That's more sinister. That's scarier. That's flag being successful and pleased with the outcome. It's like if you have to keep telling everybody you're the king, you undermine your authority as the king. Yep. If you're flag and you have to tell people to worship you, I kind of think you're undermining your authority for them to want to worship you. Even if it's through fear, I think you scared them enough already. You used magic to kill a dude. <laughs> so anyway, that's just an example of why this didn't work. It's not all bad, but it's mostly not great. I will say I did like Freddy's reading of that. Get thee behind me, you fucking bastard. I thought that that was good. I smiled at that moment, so I'll take exception with you on that. Everything else you said, I buy. Yeah. It also didn't seem like it was like a meeting of good versus evil. It seemed like two people at a work picnic who were having an argument <laughs> over a parking space. There was no sizzle of power. It was just like two people who seemed to not agree. Yeah. But again, I think a lot of this is me saying it worked is that just... Maybe I shouldn't do this because I'm not known for doing this. Just ignore all that and just get into <laughs> the story. Like, I know that doesn't sound like me at all, but like, maybe it was because it was novel and different for me. I was like, all right, I'm buying this. I'll tell you what didn't work for me is that we're told, hey, King's writing the end and we're going to have a whole new story and it's going to be about Franny and Stu and, and what happens after the stand. And a lot of this seemed to be King repeating himself. So we've got a well that a woman falls in, which is reminiscent of. Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's game and 1922. And then we've got a rat that bites Franny and rats are big in King's work. And even the whole who Franny begat sounds like what happens to Kojak, because aren't we told in the book that Kojak is going to live for a long time and, mm -hmm. and have babies. So like, it's, it just seemed more like King took pieces of some of his other stories and just turned them into this Franny and Stu thing, which again, I'm not complaining about King has repeated himself numerous times in lots of his different stories along the way. He's still good at it. So, yeah. Um, I don't know how much of this was King's writing. We've been told that he wrote the coda. Which part of this was the coda? Was it the Stu and Franny sitting on the beach in the Pacific Northwest that was supposed to be Maine? <laughs> the sun's on the wrong side. <laughs> Is it a sunrise or a sunset? We won't tell. We purposely chose a gray day. Yes. I just think it's funny that two people who know each other pretty well and are fairly close and just spent a week together in a car, the first time they're going to talk about what happened in Nebraska is a week later mm -hmm. on the beach. But eh, different relationships work in different ways. Yeah. Um, one thing that also didn't work for me here was that young Abigail heals Franny with magic. And I kind of feel like... Uh, King's tendency for having black people having magical powers and the uh, offensiveness of that aside, because that's there. This show, the adaptation at least, has worked pretty hard to make this less a Christian thing and more of good versus evil. But it never established that Mother Abigail had magical abilities. Other than the dream stuff. Yeah, but that was something that seemed to be shared among yes. all of the people in the in the story but she didn't seem to have the ability to use magic she was if anything a conduit of goodness 
of benevolence. And she interpreted it through the lens of Christianity. So she thought of herself as a vessel for God. But when she arrives in this episode as the younger incarnation of herself, she just waves a hand over Franny's broken body and we watch her reassemble as <laughs> though she's like, it's a scene out of Christine and, and the, the car is just undenting itself. And right. was that God doing that? I don't think so. It felt like a spell. It felt like, it felt like Abigail was doing exactly what Flag offered to do but without charging a price. Yep. So now all of a sudden we've got Magic Flag and Magic Abigail, two sides of a coin. Okay, there's there's something interesting going on there, but it doesn't align with what the show has done for eight episodes, nor does it really align with what the book did. It just feels out of left field. And if this is part of what King contributed, what was he doing? What was he trying to accomplish here? It just felt disjointed. And I also don't really understand why there's like a young girl version of Abigail doing this. Right. There's no established, you know, story leading up to the fact that there would be like a, a young girl version of Abigail or the Abigail from a hundred years prior or something like that somehow existing in this. At first, I thought maybe this was like a descendant of Abigail's. Well, that would have made sense, right? Who still lives nearby where Abigail spent most of her life and in Nebraska and everything. But we need to stop talking about this because I enjoyed, for the most part, the episode when I was watching it. And the more I talk and think about it, the more I see the problems with it. The more we think about this, the more it doesn't seem to work. And it does seem like the writers had an opportunity to do this. But because they screwed up by making Hemingford home an old age home instead of a town where Abigail grew up, you lose that opportunity to say that this is one of her descendants who survived the plague and has the similar powers as her great-grandmother or whatever. But yeah, I think we should put all that to the side, put it in a drawer, shut the drawer, not think about it, and move on to our Dark Tower thinnies, Jay. All right, let's do that. Jay, as some of our listeners pointed out, and as you and I both noticed, there's a turtle when they get to the house. There's a very obvious shot of a turtle standing in the windowsill that is only there, I believe, to be a callback to Maturin, right? That's the name of the turtle yeah. in the Dark Tower. Yes. I don't know if it's supposed to represent anything more to anyone who has not read the Dark Tower and if it's just, hey, King saying, I want this in here. But I can't imagine that for anyone who hasn't read the Dark Tower, that turtle had any sort of impact on them whatsoever. Maybe if they read it. Fair enough. So the turtle was my first thing on a list of Dark Tower thingies. The second one that I had was the scene with Franny Oakley in her gunslinger style holster. The type of gun and the type of holster and the way that she wears the holster yep. all very much reminded me of a gunslinger and therefore a thinny. Very good. The thing that Flag wants from Franny when he is tempting her is that he wants to, quote, see through your eyes. And I thought that that was like the drawing of the three when Roland goes through the doors that he sees through the eyes of the people whose door he walks through, right? Yeah. And Franny immediately questions this and says, you're going to possess me, which is exactly what Roland does when he does it. He doesn't mm -hmm. just see through their eyes as he takes over their consciousness and he becomes Eddie and he becomes Odetta and he becomes Jack Mort when he goes through their eyes. It wasn't clear to me what Flag was hoping to do by seeing through her eyes, but 
if it's anything like that book, he would be able to control her at that point, yeah, which she completely. immediately recognizes like, oh, you're going to possess me. So I thought that was a neat thing, especially since that's one of my favorite books of the series. Yeah, that was a really good one there. Um, and there were a lot of references. Various characters talked about how wheels keep on turning and Ka is a wheel after all. Yep. So I'd call it a thinny. Yeah, sure. And we missed the 19 on the radio, but Little Bit saw that, and that's another cool one. So I put in some effort looking for others. There was an address on the house in Nebraska. I think it added up to 18 or 20. It was. It could have been 19, but it wasn't. <laughs> and there were two prominently visible license plates in this episode, mm. and neither one of those added up to 19. I even tried converting some of the letters to like Roman numerals or something valued, as, <laughs> and no, it just didn't work. And I wasn't going to do any more complex math than adding uh, no averages, no square roots, <laughs> none of that. These are just missed opportunities. The people who made this show put a turtle in there and tuned the radio to channel 19. Yep. They're not unaware of this stuff. So that's where I think the, the, the good work comes in. You know, make the road sign say, you know, Boulder, 19 miles. Make the have the, have Franny have 19 grandkids instead of 20. Yeah. Come on. Just change the line of dialogue. <laughs> instead of saying we drove 400 miles in one day, say we drove 19 miles in one day. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. How about some yucking it up moments? Blah. Sean, there was nothing in this episode that made me want to wretch, so I don't have any yucking it up moments. All right. Mine is that when Franny has her voiceover and she's talking about how baby Abigail gets sick, and at first they're thinking, oh, hopefully it's just the flu or, the, or, or croup, and it turns out no, because the baby started to get a tube neck. When she says that, there is a scene, and the producers didn't have the courage to show this because I think it would have been even too gross to show. There is in the foreground a blurry baby in a bassinet, and you can see that its neck is malformed and that there's a tube neck growing around this baby's neck. And I don't think the producers had the courage to do it because it would have been too gross and too much to show a young infant with uh, Captain Tripp. So perhaps this is more in my imagination than actually being shown, but I was able to picture it because I've seen it too much elsewhere in the show. So that yucked it up for me. I mean... It really bothered you, so I guess it counts. <laughs> it, it counts, goddammit. I mean, this is a very subjective part of our show. <laughs> I think the whole show might be subjective, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that's not subjective is our patrons. We can objectively say that they support our show and get access to Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. And we could objectively say without a doubt that we are thankful to them for becoming patrons, and that you, listener, right now, hearing my voice, can also become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. I think it's time for us to get into some fun stuff. Fun stuff it is. I would like to just point out that even in a post-apocalyptic world, the ubiquitous baby blanket is used for Franny's baby. And if you aren't sure of what I mean, you'll notice that there is a white blanket with pink and blue stripes, and that is the most popular baby blanket in North America, and millions of them are given out every year to brand new babies born. 
And I'm going to put a link into the show notes to one of the many stories that have been written about this specific blanket, um, because it is literally ubiquitous. Anytime you see a baby, you've probably seen this blanket. Sean, you did hear me when I say that this was the fun stuff. (laughs) It is fun when you notice this baby blanket. I always notice it, especially since I've heard these stories. So there you go. All right. (laughs) I wanted to call out the continued awesome acting by Flag's Button. It's fantastic. That moment when the music is building up and we're kind of doing that tracking shot through the rubble of the atomic blast and we finally come upon the button and it's got the dead X eyes and the flatline mouth and then bing, it's back to the smile. That's like Oscar material right there. At least a daytime Emmy. I think that the potential only nominee that might have a chance against the button is the dog playing Kojak. That dog did a good job of like walking up to the corn, tail wagging, and then all of a sudden you could see the posture of the dog change as it could tell that there was something in that corn. Yeah. And he talked Stu out of killing himself with just the right whimper. He's a good boy. He is a good boy. The other thing that I was worried about that I think constitutes fun stuff is that when Kojak started walking towards that corn and the ominous music played, and then you saw a child's hand and a doll, I'm like, we're going to have episode 12 of Children of the Corn, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) This is the coda that King's been writing is Children of the Corn 12. You know, I would expect and accept this level of schlock in Children (laughs) of the Corn 12. (laughs) but not the stand. Um, I might have read too much into this, but I thought that Patsy Cline's I Fall to Pieces was some interesting foreshadowing for Franny's own journey down to the bottom of that well. (laughs) Where she fell to pieces. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's very literal. (laughs) It's about as sophisticated as this show gets. I will say that just before Patsy Cline's I Fall to Pieces played, All the random people in Boulder who we don't know and don't have names for because everybody who was named is dead, except for the one-armed man from X-Files character. Krychek. Krychek. They are all line dancing. And I just got to say that if I have a choice between surviving a plague that kills 99.9% of the people of the world or line dancing, I think maybe I'm going to choose to go to Vegas where I could watch flag dance instead. (laughs) But no line dancing, please. That's just not my style. You know- Now that I'm thinking about that scene, how it was just all these people who we don't know and have no lines. Yep. I can imagine like the casting call, like we need 90 extras and do like you're at a picnic, right? Yep. But it reminded me of the opening scene of Children of the Corn, where (laughs) we're in this diner. It's filled with probably some amateur and some inexperienced and, and, you know, like day actors or something like that. Like, They probably didn't even have the whole script. They just had that scene. They didn't know what the book was about. Nothing. They're just told, you're going to be sitting in the diner, pretend to be doing diner stuff, (laughs) and then you die of poison. And they're like doing all of these things. They're all over the place. No one has coached them on what it looks like to die of poison. So they're all doing different things, and they're doing it at weird different times. And it just felt like that. This picnic was like, do the thing, like line dance and you flip burgers on a grill and you, you pretend DJ. to have a conversation with this other person. And yeah, like that. Well, it was a much better use of the money than actually showing Stu and Tom getting across the Rockies and that harrowing journey that yeah. King spent 70 pages in the book 
God forbid I want to see any of that on screen, especially the emotional moments when Tom and Nick get back together, even though Nick's in ghost form and he helps to heal Stu and, and, and survive. I mean, I don't know. I'd much rather see line dancing than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the line dancing is probably my top priority in all the entertainment that I consume. <laughs> yeah. But just below that is seeing an important and well-built character like Nick Andros. He goes from being a real person with some physical handicaps and an important character in the story to being an even more important character in the story. But now because he's the supernatural version of himself, he can help others even more and continue to be in the story. It's yeah. kind of interesting, but not as interesting as line dancing. No, and also show Tom's importance in helping Stu. You yeah. know, Tom has done a good job in getting to Vegas, being a spy there, escaping of his own volition, and then finding Stu and Kojak in the middle of the Rockies and then able to get him the right medicine. Not to mention dodging a nuclear blast. <laughs> yeah. Fix his leg, but no, he gets to be in the background when Stu says, Tom saved my life, Franny. Yeah, that moment really burned my ass. And it was, <laughs> I get Stu comes in, runs to Franny. I get Stu comes in and sees the baby. And then it's all about Franny, baby, Franny, baby. Wow. But it's like Tom ceased to exist for Stu. Not one little bit like, hey, yeah, Tom, get over here. Give Franny a hug. <laughs> Look, the baby that I've been talking about for the last however months while I've been like sweating through fevers and healing a leg and all this other stuff. None of it. And Hanky's like trying his best. He's leaning into the frame. He's like, oh, wow, expressions and stuff. But they gave him nothing. Man. And Stu's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy back there. Don't even know him anymore. He saved my life countless times. All right, it's time to get to our Jamie Sheridans, which are going to seem incongruous with the discussion we've just had, because I'm basing my Jamie Sheridans on my immediate gut reaction following the show, and that is three Jamie Sheridans, Jay. I do think that other than maybe the first episode of this show, this is my favorite episode. Okay. The best episode. You can have a favorite of bad things. Yeah. I mean, I do think the first episode was pretty well done, and- wasn't perfect. It was I was thrown off by what was happening, but um compared to everything else, this one wasn't bad and the first one wasn't bad. So three Jamie Sheridans. How about you, Jay? For a whole bunch of different reasons, I'm also giving it three. So for the first time, we are giving it the same number of Jamie Sheridans. <laughs> wow. To justify that a little bit, I still think it was, if artificially, but still successful in some of the things it did. And the production value is really good. Um the acting is good for what the actors have been given to work with. I think every single one of these actors has risen above and elevated the material that they were given. Even Skarsgård, when he howls, worship me, I think he delivered it well, but he never should have been told to say it. That's why I ended up at a three. I think there's just enough good to offset the bad. So there I am, kind of right in the middle. Yep. Speaking of rising above and, and high rankings, we did actually see randall flag rise above and levitate and show his butt so i mean that's another reason that we're going three jamie sheridan's well speak for yourself but okay Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, i know you're more of a fan of the dancing i get it so in lieu of doing a full series wrap-up jay 
we're just going to give it a rating? Yeah, I think maybe we should just give it a rating. My overall rating for the entire series, looking back on all the episodes, and I'm going to give it two Jamie Sheridans. I'm going to give it one Jamie Sheridan and one Alexander Skarsgård. And together, that does not equal two. But since you don't let me have partial gradings, I'll, I'll give it two because there was so much promise here. And I do think that it might be helped by somebody releasing a chronological order cut. And maybe there are outtakes that they cut, like the whole Tom and Stu scenes and some other stuff. I'm confident that there's material out there that would make this better, that I hope that they filmed and just didn't show us for whatever reason. You think they actually filmed hours and hours of show and just didn't? Maybe not hours, but I think if there's hours worth, there might be one hour worth of content that's floating around out there that if they put into a director's cut and then put it chronologically, that maybe this would be somewhat worth watching. (laughs) Maybe that's me being hopeful. I'm leaving on a hopeful note, but yeah, this is no higher than two stars for me, however you want to put it. Two Jamie Sheridans, you mean? Jay, we have now spent probably nine hours talking about this. Oh, we've spent far more than nine hours, my friend. (laughs) We're giving our listeners about nine hours worth of content on this uh, series. And we are now moving on. And like the Dark Tower movie, we're not talking about this again. So that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we get back to covering books. And returning to our every other week schedule, we'll begin our coverage of the Bachman books, starting with The Long Walk, discussing chapters one through eight. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. At least a daytime Grammy. Emmy. (laughs) Oh, oh, wow. Who are you? How'd you get here? It's Stu. Isn't that nice? He's back. That would obviously give us time to see Chekhov's wench or wench. Chekhov's. (laughs) There's our stinger.